I will have several passages that I refer to for this sermon. You'll see Romans 8 there printed in on the insert, but I'll also refer to Genesis 3. Isaac Watts wrote the great hymn, Joy to the World, and I've been using each verse for each week of Advent to express or unpack some of the biblical themes that the great hymn writer uh, included. Now, he used Psalm 98 as the basis for Joy to the World, but there's some Psalm 96 woven in as well. And we'll see today Genesis chapter 3 informs the third stanza, which happens to be my favorite stanza. I'll explain that in just a bit. But we are on the third stanza of Isaac Watts' hymn, and we're looking at the biblical themes that are therein. Isaac Watts is really the great father of English hymnody. There are some other great hymnists who wrote a lot as well. But he is probably the one, at least in our faith tradition, the most prevalent. He came from a Westminster uh, confession background. That was his personal creed. He believed in that, the confession we have as a church as well. And so that's probably why we find such a resonance with what he has written. He's a colorful character. I mentioned to you at a young age, he knew multiple languages, and he was challenged by his father to write a hymn because he kept complaining about how bad the singing was in the church. And he did that, and the next week uh, he produced a hymn that they started to sing within a month. There's some other interesting stories that give you a bit about the human uh, who was Isaac Watts. And he is an interesting uh, person in all different kinds of facets. But even from the youngest age, he was always trying to rhyme. He was always trying to put together songs. And he would sit in church sometimes. This is probably foreign to most people's thinking. But he would daydream from time to time, especially when the preacher was going long. And he would think to himself of different word, word uh, mixes and such, and he would do rhymes. And his father would see him daydreaming, and he'd say, Isaac, what are you doing? Pay attention. And he would respond with a little rhyme. And he said to his father one time, a little mouse for want of stairs ran up a rope to say its prayers. It sounded cute, but his father was not that happy with his daydream rhyming that he did during church. And he kept challenging him to pay better attention, but Isaac kept coming up with these different uh, little ditties. On one occasion, his father finally decided to discipline him for his daydreaming during church. And so just as he was about to spank his son, reportedly Isaiah, I, or Isaac cried out, Oh, Father, Father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. I don't know if that, if that got him a reprieve. But Joy to the World is one of the, just one of the great hymns of the faith. It's probably in the middle of his hymn writing career, if you will. It's interesting because we sing it at Christmas time, as you well know by now, um, but it's not really about his first advent, which is what we think of during Christmas. It's his final advent. It's looking forward to Jesus' consummating all things under his kingship. It's his return. It's when we fully realize the fullness of our salvation. Now, we realize some of our salvation now. We recognize that we've been forgiven of our sins, so we're free of that guilt. Uh, we don't worry about the penalty for sin any longer. We also know that God has given us some victory over sin now. We still sin, and we're struggling, wrestling with sin, but we also recognize that things aren't as bad as they were and that God's helped us a bit in areas that we didn't seem to have any, any way to fight off before. Now we're finding some victory. That's that present activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer to live more and more into Christ and die more and more to sin. But what Isaac Watts is talking about here is when Jesus comes a final time, we'll receive the full glorification, where no longer the penalty of sin won't be an issue, the power of sin in our lives will not be an issue, 
but the presence of sin won't even be there. That's why I love this verse the most, by the way, because I'm just really sick of sin. And I don't mean your sin or the world's sin. I just mean my sin. Just sin in general, the fight against it. It's just, it's wears one out the whole of their life. Um, knowing that our sins are paid for, huge freedoms for sure. Seeing victories, that's greatly encouraging. But there's still sin in this hymn line, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It's a great, great line of celebration that realizes what we will all realize when Christ comes again or when we go to be with him. Joy to the world. What a hymn. What a way to devise our weeks of Advent, thinking of each of these verses and what the Bible says about these themes that the writer's trying to express. I want to read two verses to begin, or two from two books, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and then I'll read Romans 8 that's printed there on your insert. These two give us a picture of the background of what Isaac Watts is writing concerning in his third verse to Joy to the World. This is God's holy word, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now I'll read from Romans 8, starting at verse 18 and reading to verse 25. This is a passage where the apostle acknowledges the impact of Jesus' first impact and then looks forward to the full consummation of redemption when Christ comes a final time. Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh, Lord, you have done such great things for us. Lord Jesus, you came, you lived, and you took our place. You suffered, you died, you rose again. You ascended to glory, and you will again return in even greater glory. The certainty of your first coming fills us with anticipation about your final coming. Lord, please clear the many distractions that fill our minds. Many petty, but some are big and difficult, and they're challenging not to become consumed by Nevertheless, by the ministry, ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us focus now 
on the certainty of Christ making all things right soon enough. In whose name I pray, amen. This great third verse again of joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Thankfully, we've been walking through Genesis together in the weeks before Advent. We spent several weeks in Genesis 3, so I'm sure that the impact of the fall in all that the Scripture says about it is fresh in your mind. We'll see it again a bit today, of course. But when we look at our lives and just the experience that we have as sinners, we recognize how badly we need the salvation that Christ gives and how badly we need what Christ has offered to us, how he has come and done what the first Adam, we has undone what the first Adam did. It's true. When Watts writes, no more let sins and sorrows grow, we understand what he means to say, that sins and sorrows grow. That, that's what they do. Sin begets misery. It makes us miserable. It always leads to this. Ultimately, sin leads to death. That's the fact of it. When Adam and Eve sinned, the curse of sin was upon mankind, and it has not ceased since that fateful day recorded in Genesis 3. We long to change the past, but we can't. We can't change what happened in the garden. It happened, and the results continue on. Think of all the ways in which we would like to do something over again. An accident occurs or a mistake that we have made that we wish we could do over again. You know, p- people even joke when they'll, they're golfing, they'll uh, hit a bad drive and they'll say, I'll take a mulligan, like I'll just do that one over again. And there's areas in our lives where we have these little do-overs, but we know if that was a real game, you couldn't do it over. And that's how life is. You just can't redo some of the things that have occurred. Imagine Adam and Eve thinking to themselves, how could we do this over? No one could have asked that question more than Adam. Why did I do what I just did? Why did I follow this? I was watching a hockey game the other day, and there was a a young goalie who had a really good game overall, made some crazy saves no one should have been able to make. But the only thing he was remembered for in that game is the second goalie let in because it was really poor. He should never have let it in. He's better than that, but he let it in. And I thought it was interesting when the coach was interviewed after. The coach said, yeah, I think he would like to have had that second goal back. Wouldn't we all like to have that second goal back or whatever it is? fill in the blank, that thing that we wish we could go back and do over again. When Adam sinned, he had to be thinking to himself over and over, mulling over and over what he could have done different. Why did he do what he did? I wish there was a way to go back and do what I did, and this time do it the right way. That's the worst mistake ever made, the worst sin ever committed, at least as far as what it led to. And yet, there's no do-overs as we might think. Well, not for us there isn't. However, God takes upon himself to redo what the first Adam failed at. God does what we don't recognize happening in any other facet where you get a do-over. He provides a do-over as such by sending a second Adam. He does actually provide a way for us. No, we in ourselves cannot do it over again. We can't go back to where Adam was and change that. We're in Adam that way. But he sends the second Adam, Jesus, and he does it. He fulfills what the first Adam failed at. And this is the whole story of the gospel. This is the whole reason why we rejoice that Christ has come the first time and then look forward because of the certainty of the first time to him coming again. It's all wrapped up in this reality that God provides a do-over for mankind. So, very simply, he writes for Christians to sing this song. 
So if you're a believer, you're resting in the second Adam, not the first Adam. You've recognized your need for the second Adam, so you trust in Jesus. Jesus has come, we sing praise to him, and we sing praise to him for what he has done and provided and what he will come and do. That's what we recognize, and the celebration is that Christ has come to undo what sin has brought, the curse of sin. They go together, sin and the curse, to undo what the curse has wrought, to change things, to take away sin. And this is in totality, not partially, but completely. And the complete removal of sin is still yet to come, and we look forward to it. Because we're sure of what he did already, we look forward to what he still will do. He provides a picture of it right away in Genesis when after mankind falls, he promises in Genesis 3.15 that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the first picture of the second Adam coming happens right when the fall occurs. God's grace is prevalent right away. So the whole buildup in the Old Testament is to what we celebrated the, about the first advent when Christ comes. Then Christ comes and does his work. In Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse, the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It describes the work of Jesus, what he accomplishes when he comes. And then Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not to the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the first Adam. The second man, man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The great forecast we have for us is what Jesus will ultimately bring in his full work, consummation of all of our redemption and adoption of sons and daughters still yet to come. We've enjoyed much of the freedom from sin already. We see it past, we experience it in the present, and we look forward to it in the future. That's what's celebrated by Watts in his hymn. It really transcends the first advent, and it's great for us to sing about when we're thinking of the first advent because we're reminded about how profound his first coming is because of what it still means, what's still yet to come. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. God reverses the curse of sin through Christ's work on our behalf. God saves us from the penalty of sin. God saves us from the power of sin. And God will save us from the presence of sin. No more let sins and sorrow grow. I want us to consider this important biblical theme that is introduced in this verse by looking at it in these ways. First of all, to consider the universal impact of sin once again. Then also, see how we receive relief from sin through Christ right now, both Relief from the penalty of sin and the power of sin right now, in your life now. If you're in Christ, you have already experienced these things. And then ultimately and finally, the end of sin itself through Christ in the future. First, consider with me 
the universal impact of sin that Watts refers to when he says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. He's simply saying that sins and sorrows grow. That's what they do by nature. The curse of Genesis 3 means that everything deteriorates. Everything decays. Entropy is all around us. The constant problem of pain and suffering in the world. Sickness that we cannot solve. People starving even though there's plenty of food to eat on this earth. The average lifespan for men and women actually went down the last couple of years. Despite all the medical advancements we have in 2021, everything eventually breaks down. Misery and death are because of the pervasiveness and universal nature of sin. The reason for the existence of pain, sorrow, ailments, sickness, even death, it's because of the effect of sin on the universe. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, the world became cursed and corrupted. This is the curse of sin. You know, when I preached this same topic uh, over the course of a few weeks, a couple weeks back, a few people reached out and just talked about the heaviness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and how it's really the norm for us, maybe individually, but definitely societally, to downplay how invasive sin really is, how pervasive it is, how integrated it is, how it's woven into the fabric of humankind. Because God's given us so much common grace that we've had ability to mitigate some of the effects of the fall, at least the way they appear to our eyes. But the truth is, it's pretty bad. And one person said, I just thought it was too heavy. It's probably too much what you said about the Bible teaching on sin and how extensive it is. And as I thought about that, I was taken back. So I went back and I looked and thought, man, what did I say? Maybe I didn't smile enough or I don't know, something about what I didn't I did, I just, maybe I was too heavy about it. So I started, read over the last the several sermons, three, just on Genesis chapter three. And I do have a, a slight regret after reading those. Actually, after reading those, I don't think that I emphasized the universal nature of sin and its impact enough. I think I was, I undersold it. Uh, I just think it's, it's even more so than you can imagine. You get one layer down and you think you've covered it and you find more. That's the problem with sin. I have a really good friend who some years ago now, I think it might have been, it was over 10 years ago now that he bought, bought his dream home with his wife. They had saved for 10 years. They had noticed a house being built and he was developing a dental practice. And they noticed a house that they liked that had been built. It was probably 10 years old when they first noticed it and thought, if that house ever comes for sale, I hope we could buy that. It was in the, in the woods a bit at 10 acres and the house is beautiful, really well made and by a builder that, uh, that he knew and, and thought was great. And he, for years, they saved their money to be able to pay a good portion down on this. I mean, everything was being put together to buy this house. They wanted to be in this house. And after some years, they were able to buy it. It came for sale and they bought the house. He wasn't even in the house a month and his wife uh, got sick. And it was just an odd kind of sickness. They didn't think too much of it. People get sick. But then not too long after, he was starting to experience some issues as well. And at that time, they had two children, and both children were starting to show some kind of sign of sickness that they could not diagnose. It wasn't something real obvious to them, not anything they could have experienced. Super healthy family, you know, they're, they're into fitness, and you would just never imagine uh, that they would have this collective sickness like they did. But the only thing that was different is they just moved into the house. But the house seemed so new, less than 10 years old when they bought it. Well, he had some people come in and check the house, and there was a guy who um, went down into the basement, and just based on the way this guy could smell, he could smell mold in a way that most people can't. And he said, I think you got mold in the basement. And the basement was redone before we got it. Look at it. It's brand, it looks brand new down here. Well, that was the problem. 
he got a crowbar, the guy, and just raked a piece of one of the drywall, found that there was two layers of drywall. The people who sold it, instead of fixing the mold problem, just put another layer of drywall over it and redid the basement. The whole basement was laden with black mold. Then when they went upstairs, it had gotten into the floor joists and went up through it, and they found it in their living room. They found it in the kitchen. They even found it on the next level in, the be in, the, in one of the bedrooms. Just when you tear one piece of drywall out, you find some. You, try, you, you pour out, pull out another one, there's more. There's more and there's more. You almost don't want to check any further. That's the universal nature of sin. That's how sin is in the world. That's how sin works in us. It's just everywhere. It affects every aspect of our being and our moving. We have to recognize it as such, woven into the fairy fabric of life. And when Watts celebrates how Christ takes this away eventually, he does so by saying, no more let sins and sorrow grow. He's just acknowledging the universal nature of sin. But then he closes, far as the curse is found. So God will remove the sin that grows as far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? Everywhere we look, every wall that you tear up, we see the curse and its malignant effects everywhere. How far does the curse extend? To every atom, to every molecule of creation, from coast to coast, shore to shore, sky to sky, every square inch of the planet, that's how far the curse is found. This is the essence in ultimate sense of what God says to Adam when he says, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Paul in Romans, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We're born under the curse. We are cursed by the, cur we are cursed by the curse, if you will, and the law offers no escape. There's no way for us to work our way out of it. And everything groans because of it. That's the passage I just read in Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, just weighed down by the burden of sin. And every person experiences it as well. J.C. Ryle said very wisely, it is a family disease which we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, in which we are born. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, as our confession says so well, we are dead in sin and wholly defiled in all parts and faculties, body and soul. It's that bad. The universal nature of sin. But the hymn celebrates that we're rescued from this by Christ. We're rescued from sin. And there are three angles to which this rescue occurs, and I want to spend the rest of our time there. There's our present, or our past issue with sin that leads up into our present. Now, if you are a believer then the penalty for your sin has been paid for in the past. So in this sense, this is Christ's defeat of sin in the past when your penalty was removed. But now, living the life you're living, you're still battling against sin. Nobody has completely defeated sin. So that battle, God gives you the ability to withstand the power of sin. Sin was once your master, it owned you, but now in Christ the power of sin's been released. doesn't mean that we won't struggle with sin, but it doesn't have ultimate power over us anymore. And then finally, we look forward to the, the complete eradication of sin, completely the no more sin in our presence. So it has to do with our past, has to do with our present, and has to do with our future. 
This is the relief that Christ gives us from sin. And that's what we celebrate when we think of Christ coming and then ultimately coming for the final time. Three tenses of salvation, some have put it. We use big terms for it. Justification in the past, sanctification in the present, and glorification in the future. That's that's what's true for everyone who's a believer. First, we have relief from our sins through Christ in the grip of sin, specifically the penalty of sin in the past. Now this is an important reminder for everybody who's a believer to be reminded once again of this one-time transference that God made where he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of light. But I don't want to assume everybody here has trusted Christ in that way. So this is the way I would like to put this exhortation. As I describe Christ relieving us from the penalty for our sins, you're in one of two categories. You're in the category of Christian where you know you're a sinner, you confess those sins, say, Lord Jesus, I need you to pay for my sins, to forgive me, and that's when his works apply to you. Of course, God's doing this work, but I'm describing the sense you have as a believer that you rest in Jesus. You know he's the one who pays for your sins. You trust in him. And so the penalty for your sins is no more. You don't have to worry about penalty coming. It's not coming. Jesus took it all. So that frees you up to go to the next step of what God does in our sin, with our sin, in sanctification. But you have to be there first. And for believers, you have to be reminded of this over and over again because it's easy to get sucked back into the guilt and the shame that comes when you forget what's been already done for you. You think, oh, I'm not a Christian. Well, if you think that, you probably are. In other words, you're struggling. A struggle doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means that the Spirit of God's working in you and you're wrestling with the fact of the sin in your present life. But you know that Jesus paid for the penalty of your sin. Now, if you're not a believer, though, and you're hearing this and you're thinking to myself, well, I'm not that bad or I'm not as bad as my neighbor or this, you're you're thinking on the wrong level altogether. Your sins are that bad. Your sins are a front to a holy God. You have to have your sins taken away. You have to have your sins paid for, and you cannot do it. So you have to rest in Christ. You have to believe on him, have faith in Jesus to be your substitute, that he took your place. So that's the exhortation to you is you've got to go there first. You have to rest in him first. And once you've rested in him, it opens up this, the Christian life, the, the battle that we engage upon in our walk with Christ. So first... We're freed from sin's penalty by Christ. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you know if you're in Christ? Do you trust in what he did for you? That's how you know whether you're in Christ. If you trust his work and not your good works to be right with God, then you're in Christ. And it says in Romans, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I've done this sin and I've committed this sin. But you're in Christ Jesus and he's looking at Christ, not you. Now, if you're battling with sin, that will be the next point. But as far as the penalty, there's no condemnation for you now in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Our catechism describes this concept in the big term justification, how we know that we're justified before God. We're, how do we know we can be right with God? And it says, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, so it's a one-time occurrence that he works, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. Now, if you still find yourself under the weight of your sin, feeling that God will punish you for it, 
It could be that uh, you haven't believed on Christ and need to, but more likely it's just that you're struggling with, uh, with some aspect of your life. Something's been done to you or you're engaged in something and it's messing with your assurance. I just want to encourage you that that struggle is a good sign. It's something that's, that God is working undoubtedly in you to draw you more and more into Christ, to not be secure in who you are and what you're doing, but find your security in him. But Christ relieves us not only from the penalty of sin, he also relieves us from the power that sin has over us. This is the present, ongoing struggle that you experience as a Christian now, where you know what's right but still struggle to do it. Um, you see victory, but you also see setbacks. And that's the, the walk of the Christian. That's always a struggle. You're going forward, but there's challenges along the way. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and listen, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When you become a believer, um, as you become a believer, I should say, he gives you the Holy Spirit. That's actually how you even come to faith. And then the Holy Spirit works as a deposit, or works as a seal, works as something that confirms and affirms that you are Christ. And so throughout your Christian life, you'll have doubts, and you'll, have issue, you'll step forward, step back, but the Spirit of God will continue to give you aid to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Not earn your salvation, but work it out, to live it out, to manifest it. That's what Jesus provides as well. Not just relief from the penalty, but the power of sin that slowly loosens it, or we loosen our grip on it as time goes. Paul writes in Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when God tells us to be obedient and follow him as, as Christians now, he mentions, by the way, it's God that's going to do this work. There's a bit of a cooperation, you might say, where God will say, do this, and then we want to obey, we hear but we want to obey only because the Spirit prompts us to and then gives us aid in aid, being able to live it out. That's the dynamic that's being described when we're talking about being free from sin's power. The, the catechism does a good job with this as well. What is sanctification? That's what this concept is. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live under righteousness. I like to use this description when I've taught people this before, students in school especially. It's not a perfect illustration, but it maybe gives a little bit of a visual. Imagine for a moment that this, this hand is the sin that grips, the curse of sin that grips me. And this is, my, this is me, representing me. And uh, sin grips me and holds me and owns me. It's, it's my master. There's nothing I can do. Even if I wanted to pull out, which I don't want to pull out in my natural state, I can't because sin's too tight and too tough and it grips me. And there's no way to release but when Christ redeems me, uh, at that moment, sin no longer has the power of penalty, but also no longer has actual power over me any longer. But what's the problem? Why does sin not just get eradicated from my life? Well, I'm still holding it a bit. It's true God has taken away and Christ has paid for it, but the practical reality of how it feels is that I still like my sin a bit, at least enough of it, and I find trouble with grip, getting rid of it. Although, as I grow, I do loosen the grip on it, and over time, eventually, and then in glory, no longer. But this process of sin being released, but then us releasing it, 
that sanctification process is the course of your life. And it's, it's not a clean cut. It's not a clean cut as we'd like it to be. It is positionally the way God looks at us legally as we are now in Christ. But practically, the way it works out in your life is that we find it tough to pull away from the sins. But we do start to pull away, and we do notice it, not in fullness until the final act of God's relief of our, grace, uh, of our sin, and that is glory, glorification, when Christ comes again. The end of sin by Christ in the future. That's at his final advent, or it could be whenever we go to be with him. And the reason why I often put those together is because I'm not convinced uh, that passage of time, what does it mean once we go to, go to be with him? Once we die, once you die, your soul will go to be with the Lord. If you're in him, your body will go in the grave for a little while, and then it'll be reunited in glory, and then we'll, so shall forever be with the Lord. So uh, when you're talking about Christ coming again or when we die, we're talking about glory. We're talking about glorification. We're no longer in the presence of sin any longer. Penalty no more, power no more, and the presence of sin itself is gone. That's the essence of what Paul is longing for in Romans 8, the passage that I read at the beginning. Look there for just a moment. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, think of all that he had been through as an apostle, even by the time of writing Romans later, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed to us. He's looking to glory. They're eradication, a ratification of sin. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the final realization of redemption. On the sons of God in their final revelation, and everything's waiting for this, for God to make all things right. In verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. At that final revelation, that final redemption, the consummation of everything, will have glory revealed, God's glory, and it'll be revealed through the glorification of humanity again once we're restored to that pre-fall state. But even better, that's the thing. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just imagine the earth groaning, the created order that does not have um, an adequately capacitated mankind to take care of it like he could before the fall. After the fall, man could no longer take care of the earth. And so as a result, it all groans, wanting redemption. And it cannot have final redemption until Christ comes again. And that's when he gives that final redemption, that final glory glorification. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Singing hymns like this helps us wait for this with patience. When we celebrate what we know is going to come, it helps us be patient now for when it will eventually come. We'll fight to grow in holiness our entire earthly lives. But finally, in God's appointed time when we finish running this race and fought this good fight, we'll enter into the presence of the Lord forever and will at last be free from sin in a total sense. A total sense. Our glorification is coming. It's the day that we trade the persistent presence of sin for the perfect presence of the Lord. What a day it'll be. And this is exactly what Isaac Watts writes about 
No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I want to conclude by reading Revelation 22. And I conclude this way because it's the Bible's depiction of this eradication of sin in its presence. And it's something that it should encourage every true believer. Anyone who looks forward to sin and sorrow growing no more will love the words that John pens by the Holy Spirit in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is my favorite verse in chapter 22 in light of what we're reading. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves the practice of falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit of the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the last verse in the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
bow together as I lead us in prayer.